Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to the Heritage Voices podcast. Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals, public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can better work together to protect their heritage. My name is Jessica Uquinto, ethnographer and founder of Living Heritage Anthropology, and my co-host is Lyle Balenqua. Hopi, archaeologist, ethnographer, river guide, and educator. This is episode one of the Heritage Voices podcast. My name is Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we're going to be talking about Grand Canyon National Park's tribal program. And this will be part one of a, a mini series on Grand Canyon National Park. All right. So welcome to the podcast. Today I have Janet Cohen with me. She is the Tribal Program Manager for Grand Canyon National Park. She also has previously worked on subsistence issues in Alaska. She worked for the Navajo Nation, and she was even briefly superintendent for Canyon de Chez. So welcome, Janet. Thank you. Glad to be here. So Janet, I'm particularly excited to have Janet on the podcast because I worked with Janet at Grand Canyon, and she is one of my mentors, and she just knows so much about tribal consultation, and she is really just one of the most thoughtful and caring and knowledgeable people that I know, and so I'm really hoping that we can maybe have her on again later at some point, too, as well, because she just knows so much. So, to get started, Janet, how did you get into all of this? Well, first, let me say thanks so much, Jessica. Those were really really kind words. And just so your audience knows, I, I think the world of you as well and, and, and hope to get you back working with us at Grand Canyon at some point. So I think I would say, you know, like a lot of people, I definitely came into my career somewhat circuitously. Um, I do have an undergraduate undergraduate degree in cultural anthropology, and I was always interested in that. But when I graduated college in 1980, I didn't I didn't really know much about cultural resource management or or specifically working with American Indians. So it wasn't what I saw in my future. I took a number of years off between undergrad and grad school because I knew I didn't want an academic career and I just didn't know what was out there. But by the time I was starting to research uh, graduate schools around, you know, the mid to late 80s, I found applied anthropology. There were a lot of new programs out there in the country, the one I went to, University of Maryland, 
for my uh, master's in applied cultural anthropology was a pretty new program. And at that time, uh, I really kind of thought I would be doing international work. That was where my interest lay more international development and working overseas. So, but eventually, you know, just various jobs and life experiences led me into working with tribes in the natural and cultural resource arenas. And, you know, once that kind of started and had, and I was on a path, then I, then I realized, you know, what a wonderful opportunity and how rewarding the work was and important. And I kind of never really looked back to what my earlier thoughts had been. That's funny because actually I feel like I kind of had a a very similar path where I started out thinking I was going to do Latin American development work and, and kind of stumbled into this work as well. Maybe that's maybe that's even true for a lot of us in this field. I'm not sure, but I wouldn't be surprised to hear it. Yeah, because you just kind of don't even know it exists until you happen upon it. Exactly. So you mentioned learning along the way how rewarding this type of work could be. So what were some of those first experiences working with tribes? Well, you know... For me, so right out of grad school, so I graduated with my master's in 1989, and I was I had been doing some field work in Mexico in the Yucatan, but I had experience living and working in Alaska, and I had a lot of contacts, and I had kept up with some of those during my graduate school days, and uh, so and as you know, so in I think it was April of 1989, there was the big Exxon Valdez um, oil spill in Alaska, and it impacted some of the native villages around Kodiak Island where I had been living in years earlier. I'd left to go to go to school, so I was really aware of some of the work going on with the state of Alaska. Uh, the Alaska Department of uh, Fish and Game, and they have a whole subsistence division where they annually or regularly do harvest surveys in uh, rural and village communities all over Alaska to understand how people are, how subsistence patterns are changing and people are using the resources. So when I graduated and had had those contacts, I understood there was going to be some extra work specifically around the oil spill. And so I got back up to Alaska and got on some lists and was hired specifically to work in the native villages around Kodiak Island, where, you know, I had lived on Kodiak and a lot of the other workers were over in Anchorage or Fairbanks. So they really wanted somebody Kodiak based. And so that was kind of one of my first big introductions to all of this was going around to the villages around Kodiak Island and doing household harvest surveys about not only about the subsistence resources that people were using, but in this case, how the oil spill was impacting what they felt safe using or not. And then I was even trained by uh, NOAA people to do some uh, testing. I didn't do the testing. I did the collections and sent us specimens of subsistence foods, particularly fish, to labs for hydrocarbon analysis. And so, I don't know, I think I think that and then, of course, transitioning after that to my work at Navajo just kind of made me realize maybe how at that time, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, a lot of the work with tribes in a lot of arenas, both in cultural and natural resource, were just kind of beginning, I think, or on the scale that we see them now. And it seemed like an under undervalued maybe or underutilized 
uh, opportunity and resource and important to get American Indian Alaska Native voices where managers would know what what people were interested in and concerned about. And so uh, that, you know, that became kind of really important to me as I moved through. So that was sort of my very, my very first introduction and realizations that, wow, you know, how people are really still living so connected to the land and resources and how very vital that is to their existence as a people and their cultures. Right. Okay. So there's two things that I want to talk about a little bit more with that. So first, before we get too far away, I want to hear more about the the Exxon spill and what you found. Well, um, you know, it's been a long time and it's hard for me to remember real details now, but there were definitely some patterns that emerged. And this was, you know, just around Kodiak where on some, some of the communities there had been oil and oil cleanup. You know the oil spill itself and the cleanup efforts the cleanup efforts really um had their own unique impacts because people were paid to participate in cleanup to be local leaders and there were some real jealousies and disparities that were created in that even in the cleanup process so that was a sad and kind of interesting thing to watch because I think it created some divisiveness within these communities, which was really too bad. But in terms of people harvesting, there was definitely a tendency for older people to say, for resources that were more uh, known to be impacted by the oil, for example, maybe mussels that grow right along the rocky shores or certain types of marine mammals where it's known that the hydrocarbons and the contamination can appear in an, in organ meat. So the two things I'm thinking were there were people, older people who said, and leaders who said, well, you know, I'm not eating, I'm not letting my kids or my grandkids eat mussels anymore, but I'm still eating them because I'm in my 60s and I don't suppose it's going to kill me now, but I'm not convinced that those items are clean and I don't want my kids eating them. Similarly, Mm -hmm. I think there was a whole generation that stopped eating certain marine mammals, seals, the livers, which used to be a, a prized food and a delicacy because people understood that that's where the toxins would show up and congregate. So again, and I think, you know, for a little while there, people just start, completely stopped harvesting some resources that they felt that were it was either, you know, through impression or or through the testing were shown to be not, you know, potentially dangerous to people's health if consumed. So there were definitely some impacts. And then there was just that, you know, that real sadness and the real questions um, that people had, the sadness, of course, of the, the contamination and the impact. And then the, you know, the questions, because there were so many uh, government agencies and contractors and people working in these areas. And I think, you know, people weren't sure, who to believe and who to trust and that you know that that happens in those natural disasters and that was that was that was sad but there were a lot of resources that people didn't think were impacted i'm trying to remember i think at the time we were asking about you know marine mammals fish wildlife ducks ducks are a common harvest species and i feel like what i just told you about some of the immediate sea resources were definitely the ones that people were most wary about and concerned about and seemed to be the most impacted right right that makes sense sadly i'd like to say that that would be a a less common experience but i feel like 
probably those kinds of experiences are fairly fairly common. Yeah. Just thinking about like the Animus River this last summer or you know the the BP spill in the right. Gulf. Yep. But the other part of your question that I really wanted to get to, you were talking about working in the late 80s, early 90s. So obviously you were really building up your career with the around the same time as the start of NAGPRA, which I know has had a huge impact on your career. That's that's right. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that development and what that was like for you? Sure. Well, for me, and it was from a little different perspective for me, because in 19, I went to work for the Navajo Nation over in Window Rock in the Historic Preservation Department in a really burgeoning program called the Roads Program in the in the early 90s. I went in 92. NAGPRA had passed in 1990. And from the perspective, so I, so that was really my bigger introduction. I'd been working more in natural resources, if you see that division with tribes in Alaska or with communities. And when I got to Navajo, I learned that was where I had my training for NAGPRA for Section 106 for the Archaeological Resource Protection Act for all the myriad cultural resource laws. Now, Navajo as a large tribe and a big department at that time with historic preservation had also created a lot of their own tribal codes that mirrored a lot of these laws. So they had their own cultural resource code as well. So I had a lot of training early on, and I was actually in a program that was looking at trying to identify. um, We had archaeologists, we had cultural anthropologists, and we had what we called then Navajo cultural specialists, who were people who spoke the Navajo language because we had to interview people out in the field. And they were also knowledgeable about the kinds of uh, cultural activities and ceremonies and traditions that Navajo practice. So when a local resident in a road improvement area would identify a a site, it might be a site of of a ceremony, you know, the Navajo I was working closest with would know what that meant in the context of the cultural resource work we were doing. And so that's that was my introduction to NAGPRA as well, because of course, we were asking about asking people to identify known burial locations so that the, we wouldn't let any road improvement impact those human remains. In terms of NAGPRA, so we would also, when there were large archaeological sites or even small archaeological sites that couldn't be avoided and that we were contracting through the Navajo Nation to an organization, a, a company to do excavations, you know, we had to work with NAGPRA, but from that tribal perspective. So we not only consulted with the local Navajo communities, but we actually tried to work with other tribes, primarily Hopi and Zuni, who had claimed cultural affiliation to some of those remains to work through the NAGPRA process. So so that was my introduction and work with NAGPRA. And that's a tough one at Navajo because there's a lot of cultural taboos about discussing burials, identifying burials, going near burials, and there were a lot of, you know, in the old days, the way Navajo people buried people, and even uh, there were a lot of burials, as I recall, that related to smallpox deaths or, or, or flu when people were just traveling. And so if somebody died while traveling across the reservation, whoever was with them or the local community would bury them, but it was often people that 
So people would identify burials, but they didn't know who was buried there because it was just a traveler several generations ago who died during the big um, flu epidemic of 1918 or some other issue. So it was it was really interesting. I did work with some of my Navajo colleagues. Um, we developed a policy for a tribal policy that was similar for NAGPRA for on the reservation followed NAGPRA pretty closely in general, but it included it included advice and guidance for those of us working with NAGPRA and coming into contact with human remains because of Navajo beliefs. So for example, if we had any contact with human remains, we would not go right back to the office. We would go home and shower and change our clothes and things like that to protect our other Navajo coworkers in the office from that contamination, if you will. And it was, I think, you know, when people were hired, they knew this was going to be a difficult job. They knew they were going to have to talk to people about and go near archaeological sites and potentially human remains. And so I think, you know, a number of my Navajo coworkers would regularly have ceremonies that cleanse them of any of that contamination as well so that they would not, you know, it wouldn't negatively impact their families or communities so that was really my introduction to NAGPRA. It was definitely not the collections and museum and repatriation side. It was definitely the on-the-ground discovery kind of end of things. Right. Wow, that's, that's really interesting. Okay, so we're going to pause for a moment and take a real quick break. We'll be right back. I'm here with Michael Ashley from Codify.com, and we're going to talk about the new photo boards that they're developing and why we need them. Michael, what's important about a photo board, and why does someone have to really think about what they use in the field or in the lab? You know, Chris, it's interesting when we look at field photos, the way we've been taking them hasn't changed much in the past hundred years. Some people may use the back of a clipboard or paper sheet to provide a clean background, or go to the trouble of using those photo boards with all the letters, but we really need our photos to do a lot. We need a new kind of photo board that can help us achieve consistent color, provide scale, and help us measure things, especially if we're not collecting artifacts and we have just one chance to get it right. Developing a photo board that can do all these things, especially designed for digital photography, well, this is a challenge. It needs to be indestructible, weatherproof, fade-proof, lightweight, portable, and affordable. So what is Codify developing? And as it says on the website, what makes it magic? All right, in our lab and field testing, we started with a 10 by 12 inch board, big enough for most artifacts we encounter in the field, but not so big it would be a pain to carry. The board is magic because it has special markers on it that will produce a measurable model in 3D just from taking a few photos, and the object will be magically color balanced by using the board as a background. There's space on the bottom so we can superimpose a digital caption and company logo, plus a space for either physical barcodes or virtual ones to dramatically improve field and lab accessioning of artifacts and samples. So we've already received a lot of suggestions for other boards, so we're releasing a 4x6 inch pocket board in both Imperial and Metric. And we're psyched about our directional arrow, which has both metric and standard scales on it, and will white balance your photos. It's really cool. So when can people expect to get one of these photo boards, and where can they get them? All right, well, we're excited to say that we have a limited run in production right now, shipping just in time for holiday gifts. We want to get these in your hands and look forward to your feedback. Chris, what kind of deal can APN listeners get? All right, well, Codify is offering a great Cyber Monday deal for APN listeners. 
just head over to www.codify.com forward slash APN for a Cyber Monday discount code that's valid only on that day and for other ongoing discount codes just for you. That's codifi.com forward slash APN. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. I'm glad that you brought up some potential advice for for NAGPRA practitioners, because like you said, that is it's a particularly delicate one. So do you have any other suggestions for people that are working on on NAGPRA projects on how to be sensitive? Yeah, I think the main thing, you know, because each tribe has different concerns around that. So, you know, now as a, you know, from the federal perspective, I've done a couple of repatriations. And, and, you know, of course, we're working with tribes that we have already developed trustful relationships with. But I just ask beforehand, I say, look, you know, okay, we're going to be collectively doing this repatriation. Is there any part or a reburial? Is there any part that you don't want us at? Are there things you want to tell us in advance how we should, you know, what we should wear, how we should behave, what we need to do to make this work most effectively for you? And and everybody's been great about that. And I think people appreciate that because they're not thinking about it necessarily either. They're thinking, you know, that from their perspective and all their people would know how to behave or what to do or whatever. And we, you know, so we remind them, you know, this is, you know, something we're doing with and for you and you need to tell us those parameters. And so when we did, when we've done some reburials, repatriation slash reburials, you know, I've asked, you know, where can, where can women be? Where can men be? Where, you know, what are the cultural restrictions around who we bring and how we, how we interact with these items or with you, and in our case, with um, with the tribes we've worked with, they've they've been uh, appreciated that question, and then been very clear about 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 that, and it's not been a problem at all. But it's just the comfort level in asking, and I I have that now. I didn't always, but I've developed that, and and that's a strong piece of advice for people. Don't don't feel uncomfortable. People are going to appreciate being asked. We don't know unless we ask, and we should always ask. And that's, you know, those are some of those, I think, you know, Jessica, when we talked earlier, sort of aha moments of what the response may or may not be of that, you know, because we sometimes are so cautious and conservative in our approach to these events. And while they're very um, important and they're very, I don't know what the word is, even they're serious and they're sometimes the tribes are more relaxed about them than we would expect. And that surprises me. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. mix of old and new. So I've seen, you know, repatriations where, you know, people bring religious paraphernalia that's clearly old and important. And and then there's also a, you know, a plastic miracle whip bucket that somebody's using for something, a tub. So it, it isn't always quite as, I don't know what the word is. Um, Serious is not the right word, but it always surpri- it surprises me what a mix there is of old and new and and lightheartedness but also sanctity around these kinds of events. Mhm. No, I I 100% agree. I've had this this conversation exactly before saying that those kinds of experiences feel surprisingly positive a lot of the time. You know, we expect very serious, very contentious, but actually it seems like there's quite a bit of a, a sense of, of relief almost and that the things are being set right and just, 
uh, yeah, a much more positive experience than than one might expect. Absolutely, a collaboration. Uh, yep, I, I agree completely. A relief and and then also that positive that we're working together, that we're all doing the right thing. Yep, I agree completely. Right. Well, and the other thing that you said that I wanted to to reiterate was that it's also okay just to say from the beginning when you start working with people, you know, I don't know all of the, the culturally appropriate things to do. I don't know how things work. So if I'm at, at any time behaving inappropriately, please let me know because I guarantee you that I'm not doing it maliciously. Not that that gives you a license to just behave however you want, but just setting that expectation aside ahead of time, I think opens up that dialogue, like you're saying, just asking and say, and setting up the expectation that if you're if you're doing something wrong, it's not because you're not trying to be respectful, you just don't know how. Right. So I thought that that was a really important point that you made. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit just because I want to make sure that we get to it. But can you tell us a little bit more now about some of the current work that you're doing with the the Grand Canyon Intertribal Council, what that is, what you're doing? Sure, of course. What you want to be doing? Absolutely, because mm-hmm. that's been that's a great and evolving project to talk about and really is a highlight right now, I think, for Grand Canyon and the Park Service. And and it didn't go in the direction I thought it would, which is, you know, also just fine because it's actually gone in a better direction. But so in 2013, I I just, you know, so typically with the, with the park and with most federal agencies, you have a group of tribes you consult with and you consult project by project, tribe by tribe. You know, that's the government to government aspect. And of course, there's lots of other stuff in there working staff to staff doing things, but but that's the general model. But to me... While there's great differences among tribes, there's also some sh- more that's shared and common among them than is different in relation to working with the government, I think, and their interests in particular projects. So I had this thought that maybe it would be a good idea, especially as we were hearing more in the Grand Canyon region about mining and the proposed tram and Escalade project, I knew tribes had a lot of shared concerns. And I thought, geez, you know, maybe beyond our always asking about projects, we, it would be really good to have an opportunity for collective wisdom of the tribes to come forward. And so I envisioned a, a, a group, it's ended up being called the Intertribal Advisory Council, that could come together with a couple of reps from each tribe that we work with that were interested and speak directly to the superintendent, the deputy, you know, that level of management. But But the conversation being generated from the tribe's point of view and the tribe's interest, not the park. And so that was my vision, and I went to our wonderful partner supporter association nonprofit, the Grand Canyon Association, and I said, I have this idea, you know, can we do a a pilot project? And when they had a call for, you know, certain kinds of money, I I put that in and said, you know, I'd like a few thousand dollars to kick off this pilot project. My plan was to have maybe quarterly meetings to be able to, of course, reimburse people for their travel and their time to buy coffee and food, things like that that are often really challenging in the government or at least in the in the National Park Service. So so that was the plan and we did kick it off in 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 13. 
And those first couple of meetings, you know, we did hear from tribes, but it ended up being coinciding with some changes that were being planned anyway for the Desert View area, like the Park Service taking back over management of the Desert View Watchtower, the 1930s Mary Coulter building, from concessions because we were doing new concessions contracts and the park wanted to manage that building themselves. So there were a few things that happened and the superintendent actually said to the tribes, you know, I'd really like your input. We'd really talked, he and at the time Diane Chalfon I think had talked about really shifting the vision for that area of the desert of Desert View, the watchtower and that general visitors area into more of an intertribal cultural heritage place that would be a destination for people to come that really wanted to, you know, learn about tribes. So essentially, Dave, then Superintendent Ibaraga said, you know, are you with me on that? Does that seem like a good idea? And boy, you know, tribes got really behind that really quickly, because it met a lot of the things they were talking about as interests and needs anyway, which were, you know, more involvement in interpretation, youth development and education, economic development. So we we hired a uh, Cherokee-owned, woman-owned facilitation company called OCO. We started working with the American Indian Alaska Native Tourism Association, or IANTA. Hi, this is Jessica. I'm interjecting here for a moment. So IANTA, or the American Indian Alaska Native Tourism Association, was founded from some Bureau of Indian Affairs tourism-related money. And its mission is to define, introduce, grow, and sustain American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian tourism that honors traditions and values. You can find more about AANTA at www.aianta.org, and I'll include that in our show notes as well. Back to Janet. And they became a partner, and they found some huge grants for us. They really helped take the lead in finding money. And so so we started really quickly working on also a short and long-term strategic plan. We highlighted some of the activities we could start right away. So, So right now, here's where we're at. That group's been meeting fairly regularly for several years. The goal is to create at the Desert View area a place for first voice, authentic interpretation versus, you know, an NPS ranger. And with support from our association and a lot of partners, currently have four to five days a week out at Desert View of cultural demonstrations. It started out just weekends, and for the summer it's expanded. Most, if not all, of the tribal groups, the cultural groups have already participated. We're getting rave reviews from the cultural demonstrators themselves, not only how emotionally rewarding it is for them to be out at Desert View and in the Kiva room of the Watchtower doing their demonstration, but also it's been it's been financially great for them. So there's the you know, one of the arms of economic development. They love being there. They're great ambassadors. And in addition to the demonstrations, which we've supported We've also had now two years of ancestral lands uh, conservation groups, which are part of the Arizona Conservation Corps. So they provide American Indian crews, 
of youth to us that are either on those on the core group or they're an intern and they're working with us not only throughout the park but also out at Desert View and they've this summer been able to pilot something we've talked about in our larger group a lot which is two things one's a step off step on step off tour project so there was a native youth guy this summer I'm not sure if he's Hopi or Navajo um but he's been as tour buses come in either the people get off or he gets on the bus and he talks for about 10 minutes about what it means to be I think he I think he's Hopi to be Hopi and their connections to Grand Canyon from his perspective to that tour bus and then gets back off and they go on their way and similarly we're piloting something that's been called an ask me booth so where there's an area where a person um, from one of the tribes with a sign, I guess, that says what tribe they're from is just there to answer questions. So visitors out at Desert View can go up and say, oh, I hear you're a member of the Zuni tribe. I have some questions. I've heard Zuni has uh, their emergence place in the canyon. Can you tell me about that? Or whatever it may be, how do I go visit Zuni? Are there some dances coming up? You know, what do we, what can I do if I go to the Pueblo? So through this larger Desert View project and working with the Intertribal Advisory Council, these are these ideas that have been generated that we're now actually starting to put into place on the ground. So it's hugely exciting. I think we'll be doing that a while longer as we get try to implement more of the strategic plan and the tribe's ideas through that area You know, over time as the Desert View project is its own thing and is self supporting and sustaining, you know, then maybe the Intertribal Advisory Council will go back to the role, the smaller role without all the partners that I envisioned, which is them talking directly to the superintendent about, it could be about our projects, but it could also just be about other concerns and issues that they have for the greater Grand Canyon region. So I think I've covered all the really important pieces you know, and, and maybe, Jessica, at some point you can interview one of the tribal representatives to that group and hear a little more from their perspective for your audience about what it's been like to be a part of that. I think that would be uh, really cool and exciting for folks to hear. Yeah, that would be perfect. Let's do it. <laughs> but it's definitely, a, you know, it's definitely now hopefully a model in the Park Service. And, you know, what I tell people who say, um, oh, maybe we could bring that to such and such a park. And I say, well, do you already have good working relationships and trust with the tribes? Because right. it's not so easy. And unless you, you know, that's the that's the foundation. And we had that here at Grand Canyon. Not everybody has that. And that's been part of what's make it, made it work as an intertribal um, effort. Also, the fact that several of our tribes, probably five of the tribes anyway, regularly work together on other uh, interagency kinds of projects like the adaptive management program or the, you know, for the Glen Canyon Dam and the river management, they already have that background and experience of working collectively. And so that helped as well, I think. But it's right. been great because the tribes have really, um, really articulated their own interests well, been respectful of each other. And also when, when somebody's not at the table say said, 
you know, for example, well, let's not forget have a supai. They couldn't they couldn't come to this meeting, but you know, it's important, of course, you know, that we represent them or that we get information back to them. So it's been really, um, you know, the interests and the concerns for each other have been so genuine. It's been great to see and hear, and and really, uh, they've been also really appreciative of the efforts and see it as something unique and special that Grand Canyon is doing with tribes. So that's a cool thing. Good. Well, on that positive note, why don't we take a break for a moment? Okay. Professional Certifications for Scientists, or PCS, aims to provide practical educational videos, field guides, knowledge tests, professional certifications, and deployment connections to professional scientists everywhere. Check out the videos page for high-quality training videos on a variety of topics. Find PCS videos at www.pcscourses.com forward slash videos. PCS, a place for good scientists to become great science professionals. All right, so we are back. Um, So continuing on this positive note... I just wanted to ask some more about what other creative or effective outcomes that you've seen come out of tribal consultation or other really particularly successful projects like this Desert View project um, that you've seen happen. Okay. Yeah, there's one that I that I find really surprisingly good and interesting that I'd like to talk about because it's one that well that overlaps kind of the boxes that we often have in the government of uh, natural and cultural resources, which of course for tribes is, you know, doesn't work so well and can be a real impediment if you don't think creatively. So, and as I talk about this, keep in mind one of the things that I think is really important for anyone entering this to, this field to understand that sometimes isn't understood is that for a lot of projects, more often than not, consultation does not end. It's ongoing. And it doesn't end when you sign a programmatic agreement under Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act because your your programmatic agreement tells you how you're going to work together in the future. So, you know, that's been something that I've tried to instill in people. And for some projects, there is more of a beginning and an end. But for a lot of them, there really isn't. And for the most successful ones, it's ongoing. And the one I'm going to talk about kind of describes that. So... Here at Grand Canyon, uh, we have uh, several endangered species, and in this case, I'm going to talk about humpback chub, which are in the river. It's one of the watersheds that has a, a population, and we've also been doing a natural population that isn't gone, as it is in many other places. And it's also a, a they, the fisheries program has been doing translocation, so they take juvenile humpback chub from a hatchery and put them back in the canyon and a big and they do all of this under you know um a, uh environmental legislation so it's not uh just that they want to do it or actually obligated to do some of this work and one of the ways that they've made that help the humpback chub survive and help the reintroduced small humpback chub survive is by getting rid of some of the non-native species that are in the canyon, and particularly trout, brown trout and rainbow trout, that were put here in the early days, you know, in the early 1900s, for better sport fishing. And, of course, people didn't understand how that could cause a problem at that time for the uh, fish that had been native here. So we got into uh, the program, the fisheries program, wanting to 
do a long-term fisheries management plan uh, for actually Grand Canyon and Glen Canyon, which is the Lee's Ferry area, especially in the trout fishery there, which is a sport fishery. And so, um, you know, we started talking to tribes and, and several tribes, but in particular in this case, the most vocal were the Zuni tribe. And they said to us, you know, we really object to trout removal, which kills trout. And, you know, there's a discussion about why that is, and it has to do with the Zuni. It's a a longer story, but in a nutshell, the Zuni view the fish in the river as their relatives. And they also, of course, like many tribes, have a value for all life, and they didn't want to see indiscriminate killing in the canyon. They think that can negatively affect them at home. And we were, you know, proposing to do a fair amount of electrofishing and other other methods of, of removing trout to lower the trout population to enhance the survival of the humpback chub. So, you know, we just we said, okay, well let's let's talk more about this. Let's see what we can do together. Do have to do something. We are gonna have to remove some trout. But our we were really um lucky here at Grand Canyon with a great fisheries program manager, Brian Healy and his staff Emily Amana, and then Clay, uh, Clay Nelson, who's since moved on. But they were really open to really talking and thinking through creative ideas. So eventually we developed a plan through consultations with the Zuni to use the removed trout for what we called beneficial use. And the beneficial use was human consumption. So we started freezing, smoking, freezing, in the field even, trout could share them tribes and whomever uh, as part of this beneficial use plan. And that made, you know, that made the Zuni really, you know, quite, quite happy. And it also, we also, in, in the park, there's other, there's other fish removal that's managed by Bureau of Reclamation. So this is really specifically the park plan and what we had control over. But our fisheries plan chose the alternative in the environmental assessment as the preferred alternative that would actually remove a little fewer trout to also address the way Zuni was commenting. Um, so we didn't want to, so it was sort of like, well, what's the least amount of trout we can remove that will enhance the humpback chub survival? And so that, so we did that as well. So after a while of removing the bigger trout for human consumption, folks said, you know, we have these really tiny, like, you know, inch long or whatever, little trout that we get in the nets that, you know, obviously you can't use for human consumption you know, what might we do to make that a beneficial use as well? Well, it turns out that Zuni has their own eagle aviary, you know, rescued eagles. They have a fish and wildlife permit, and other tribes do as well in the country, not so much in our region, where they can use then the shed feathers of those eagles for ceremonial purposes in the village. And if they have enough, they even share them with other tribes. So we were like, wow, maybe we could give these tiny little trout to those eagles. Wouldn't that be great? And so we've been doing that as well. And that's been, you know, fantastic. We don't have a ton of them. We don't have them all the time. But when we do, we transfer them over there. And as it turns out now, the Navajo Nation just this summer also got a permit from Fish and Wildlife for an aviary, and they created an aviary, I think it opened maybe in July, um, at their zoo in Window Rock. So while we haven't yet transferred these tiny fish for the eagles there, when we have them this winter is when we usually get them, that's our plan. 
so those pieces to me were super successful and it's happened over time. The other piece was someone at Zuni, I think it was their Tippo, saw something in one of our plans and said, you know, I think I think where you're electroshocking near a particular creek is a problem for our religious leaders because of the importance of some of that creek. So we said, okay, well, let's talk about that. We, I don't exactly understand where you, where you mean, and can we come up with a buffer zone, and can we, you know, just talk about it. So we went back out to Zuni, and we sat down with their advisory team, which is made up of religious leaders, and they said, yeah, you know, we'd really prefer you avoid the mouth of that creek where it comes together with the other creek, those two pieces of water coming together, like we've learned for the Little Colorado and Colorado Confluence for the Escalade, that's always a significant place. It's usually perceived as a, a male and a female coming together. So, you know, we said, okay, we can we can avoid that area. What what kind of buffer zone? Help us define a, a physical buffer zone around that area where we won't do this activity. And they did. And they said, you know, you could probably go up here, but we'd prefer you don't use you don't use electrofishing, but you could use nets. So they gave us a lot of really great suggestions that made our work manageable and effective, but also addressed their traditional and religious concerns. So to me, and at the same time, you know, it's a it's a cultural value and a cultural resource, but clearly from the Western and uh, federal agency perspective, we see fish as a natural resource. But what we've also said, what they've also said, and we put it in our working documents is you know, we understand from the Zuni perspective and the tribal perspective generally that fish are actually a contributing element to a TCP, a historic type of historic property, under Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act. The river is a TCP, and the fish are a contributing element. And we articulated that of our understanding of Zuni's values and beliefs in our memorandum of agreement with the SHPO, even with the State Historic Preservation Office. So to me, that was a probably the, one of the best examples of a really good outcome, a compromise, and just a shared ongoing collaboration. Yeah, there's so many parts of that to point out. I mean, like you said, the the ongoing nature of it, that you guys didn't stop at beneficial use you kept going and kept identifying additional concerns that's that's really huge in developing that trust and building that relationship and getting the best possible outcome for everybody yep and, and then other, also one other small yeah. aspect of that that i missed is well it hasn't worked out but we've we've offered every um every year we do you know the our fish crew does some training of their of their crews which are intermittent staff and volunteers and they usually do something down at uh, phantom ranch by bright angel and we've often every year you know said to zuni do you want to have a couple of people come out for that training and talk about the importance of fish and this river and what we're doing to you in your own words as part of that staff training. And while that ha I don't think we've actually had that work out yet, it's always an opportunity, and we've always invited Zuni to do that. I think they'd like to. It's just challenging with people's obligations and schedules. But they also know that we're 
you know, in our words, unfortunately not theirs, but transmitting some of that information to those crews also so that they understand a little bit about the tribal perspectives. Right, right. Yeah, you guys are doing really exciting interpretation aspects over there between the the bus and the Ask Me and and the Zuni fish for the staff. Wow, you guys are doing <laughs> I had no idea. Well, we could be uh, always be doing more, but we're doing, you know, we're doing what we can and it's you know, I just always say, you know, sometimes it's just baby steps. We're we're always moving in the right direction and that's important, I think, and I think the tribes recognize that that we're doing that and that and that goes a long way in the trust and the relationship as well. Right. Right. And then also what you mentioned, another part that you mentioned that's I think huge is just the fact that a lot of times people believe that tribal consultation is only related to archaeology. And I think that is an excellent example of how tribal consultation is is applicable to all aspects of of public land management, natural and cultural, and other aspects as well. Exactly. And then uh, a more subtle point that you made about traditional cultural properties and how people tend to view those as, I guess, just archaeology or a sacred site or, and that it's all, it can be a lot more complicated than that, or it can, you can look at it, look at different things from that same perspective. You can get more intangible with traditional cultural properties and you can look at them in different ways than than people do a lot of the time. Exactly. So I thought that was a really yeah, important point. Yep. Well. And we didn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't, uh, as part of that project, we didn't do a DOE, you know, a, a, a determination of eligibility or nomination or anything. But we all acknowledged it, and it's acknowledged right. in writing, and it's throughout there. So that, yeah, um, I think that's really good as well. And yeah, it is more subtle, and because the fit sometimes for using NHPA or T- the TCP kind of rubric, you know, in projects, it's, it, yeah, it's, you know, it's not always the best fit for tribes, but it, you know, we, we, we help where we can and, and they do too in identifying these kinds of things and using it effectively. Right. Right. So since we're getting a little bit low on time, just to end out, what would be three pieces of advice that you would recommend to somebody who's trying to get into tribal consultation? That's a really good question. I think as you get into it, I'll give you the little pieces of advice or the mantras that I tell myself at times when things seem stressful or difficult. And those pieces are, you know, one, don't take yourself so seriously. Um, mm-hmm. be your, and the second one, you know, just be yourself and retain your sense of humor. And most of all, just remember that, you know, everyone, all of us, right, we want to be heard and we want to be respected. And understanding all the laws, regulations, policies, that isn't what makes it work. What you have to recognize is the humanity and the relationship building aspect of the work. And if you go into it with that open mind and that you know, genuine curiosity and interest and humanity, you're probably going to be successful. Right. And that that last piece, I think, is so huge because it seems like a lot of times federal agencies have an outcome in mind already. And, you know, in conversations, in any conversation in life, when 
someone's not listening to you when they're just trying to convince you of something and you shut down. Mm-hmm. And so I think it really is important to remember to go in with an open mind to be able to see those creative possibilities, like you mentioned with the fish program that might actually even fit in with, with what you would like to see happen. But if you're too pushing of your agenda, you might not be open to those things and they might not be open to sharing with you. That's a really good, that last point. Yeah. And Jessica, I think, you know, along those lines, you know, while we didn't talk today and maybe at some other point we'll be able to more about the mechanics of how you can approach it. The thing that goes hand in hand with what you just mentioned and I had mentioned is starting early. You know, if you're really going to consult, you have to start at a phase where you have not made up your mind and you are open to creative solutions and you really want to hear people's input because otherwise it's absolutely transparent that it's pointless and that that for tribes that there just isn't value in spending time because if you've already made up your mind, then then it's done. And that's not what consultation is, either in spirit or even in the letter of the law. Right, right. Yeah, well, I I feel like I could talk to you for many more hours about all of this, but I think we're at a good stopping point. So we'll just have to have you back on another day to, to go through all of the – some more of, of how – how to break down the process and talk about all of that. I'd be happy to do that. And I'm really anxious to hear the interviews that you do with the other guests that you have in mind for the podcast. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, thank you, Janet. You're very welcome. So back in September, the Grand Canyon Association put out a newsletter about tribal connections to the Grand Canyon. And it features interviews with two of the people I've interviewed on Heritage Voices, Janet Cohen, Tribal Program Manager for Grand Canyon National Park from this episode, and Lyle Belanqua, Hopi Archaeologist, Educator, and Grand Canyon Association Board Member from the previous and next episodes, among other people as well. So it's pretty interesting. It'll be in the show notes if you want to check it out. And if you're interested in donating to the Grand Canyon Association and the efforts that Janet and Lyle talked about in their interviews, you can go to www.grandcanyon.org. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices Podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Heritage Voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org, or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www dot archaeologypodcastnetwork dot com 
contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.